In the fourth episode of The Modern Agilist, we sit down with Steve Pereira. Steve is the founder of Visible, where he coaches teams to boost flow and value using his four key maps of DevOps. For the past 20 years, his focus has been on using mapping techniques to guide ambitious and struggling teams toward their true north. Steve has been obsessed with process optimization and visual learning his whole life. Over his long and varied career in tech, he came to realize value streams are the key focus to unlock team alignment, velocity, value, and sustainability. You can find his website at visible.is. just wanted to kind of kick off with, yeah. with first is a, kind of the vision behind the show and while we were really excited well we are really excited to talk to you one is the vision behind this side this this show is the modern agilist right and um frankly I, i've gotten i can get pretty bored with a lot of the kind of the scene that's out there as far as like how you know retrospective games and it's like you know and so it's like let's get into the stuff that we find that's really interesting that we feel like is bleeding edge and awesome um and it not just you know uh, not just related to capital a agile but to all large-scale software delivery meaning with one or more more than one team, right? Large scale software delivery. And it uses a term earlier when talking to Rick about we're like a, a polyglot of, of agile philosophy and methods, right? Yeah. And so the reason why we're really excited to talk about talk to you is that um, you know, our background is more so uh, with on Rick's side is project management and then moved into agile. Both of us used to be developers, right? Um, but is more so connected to Scrum and mm -hmm. strict Kanban. And so you're coming with this strong kind of lean emphasis and specifically this value stream stuff. And honestly, I found myself extremely uninformed on even what a value stream is. And I was like, this guy has taken what is out there and made it his own and, it, and kind of created an entire uh specific system that he's expanded upon and so i thought let, let's have him on the show talk about the methodology the system the strategy the approach the philosophy and then and then in the end we can wrap it up with you kind of plug in your specific um services and like your type of stuff and when i got in and looked at all your stuff online i was just so impressed at the way you like present yourself and so so we're, that's for those reasons we're really excited to have you on the show Wow, I mean that uh, you can't see me blushing right now, but I definitely <laughs> am. <laughs> that's uh, that's wonderful. You know, I, I'm uh, the 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 history behind uh, what I'm doing right now is this wandering path through uh, building and fixing computers, tech support, uh, building and releasing software, systems engineering. Scrum, Agile in different flavors, uh, and learning about Lean from uh, a stint in, in uh, trying to get a, a legitimate business degree at some point. Like I've been all over the place. And what I'm doing now really pulls all of that together in a way that I think can help a lot of folks who don't necessarily want to subscribe to a specific methodology or lean too far in a specific direction. Um, 
like my allegiances really are towards flow. Just how do we eliminate friction and complexity in the way that we work, specifically the way that we work together as groups. And uh, I found that there's, there's a ton of material out there. There's a ton of learning. Everything that I'm doing with flow engineering is built on top of a mountain of excellent work. Uh, I just wanted to kind of take the parts that resonated the most with me, put them together into a package that's really easy to get started with and that doesn't fall over as you scale it mm -hmm. and and then put that out in the world so that anybody could start doing it uh tomorrow that's cool um you know to to help to help kind of uh, i'm sorry right did i cut you off no i i think i think where you're going is exactly what i was just gonna ask. I, go ahead and ask your question because i think it's exactly i know what you're gonna say I, i'm I, just to kind of wrap my hands around what where this resides okay this this um this preoccupation and interest in flow i only kind of got exposed to like flow thinking about uh, maybe a year and a half ago by the um the whole strict kanban kanban for scrum teams and the pull, pull and, away stuff right yeah, yeah all, all that stuff and specifically this author daniel vacanti who did this actionable agile for metrics predictability. I and mean, he's like, forget estimates, Monte Carlo simulations, like, and it kind of, it, I really got interested in the whole Kanban thing and, and cycle times and doing all that stuff. Is this some um, value stream? Is this happening at the level? Is this like Kanban at the program level? Is it, is it like flow up above the teams, like at the business level? Or what does this fit in into uh, the world of, hey, we have individual teams, they're delivering in cadence, right? And then, you know, there's some sort of scaling approach here. There's many teams delivering. Where in that kind of model does this uh, value stream flow fit? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a great starting point. Uh, it actually reminds me of the last conversation I had today. It was a friend of mine named Zachary, and he was, we were talking about outcomes and he was saying it's, it's really valuable to start from like scope and intent, right? When you're trying to frame a common understanding or, or get something started in the right direction. So the scope of a value stream is really the start to finish collection of sequential activities that create and deliver value to customers. So the entire end to end from we have a rough idea or someone's asked us for something or we've noticed a trend in the market, uh, we have some signal that sparks activity. And then everything that happens between that point and when a customer has something that they could use and, and leverage. And that could be services related, it can be product related, uh, it can be physical objects. Uh, where I focus is software, because I think that's where we don't have a lot of understanding of value streams and, and it's kind of new to that space. Um, but it does originally come from manufacturing. So uh, the, the original scope and intent of value streams and value stream mapping in traditional manufacturing was, okay, we have suppliers with raw materials. We need to put those in one end of a process and take a car out of the other end and put it in front of a customer. And that was a complex 
scenario for a hundred years ago. We're now in that situation where uh, we have way more complexity in the software world. Uh, we have even less visibility because it's not like you can just stand in the middle of a factory and see how this all works. And so we're in this perfect time now that we can move fast enough because of the advances and improvements provided by agile and DevOps and project management techniques. And uh, we can start to leverage all of that into better outcomes by looking at the big picture, because the reality now is that the bottleneck is no longer with software development. It's no longer with operations. It could be anywhere else in the value stream across your organization. And your organization isn't set up for proper visibility uh, for that purpose. It's also not set up for proper flow of work in that scenario where we're really talking about tying everything together from start to finish to get something out to a customer. You know, we're still hopping all over the org chart to, to do that. So the intent of something like value stream mapping is to see and measure that holistic end-to-end -end performance. The scope is anywhere from the entire organization, like across every single part of the organization. If, if you're thinking of, uh, let's say a web service to provide travel booking, it's everything from like the customer lands on the website from an ad or you know, even the advertising that gets them to the site to they've booked a flight and they get a confirmation email. Um, what is it, what are all the things that need to happen in order to facilitate that action? So it's not that customer journey, it's the how that customer journey actually happens. You know, uh, you, go ahead, Rick. So Steve, you're, so, you know, at a macro level, right? I mean, this is this is not um, this is not separate from an individual. Let's let's put it into perspective of development teams, right? A development team could be operating in their own process, right? But the value stream and the way that you look at it when you come through, maybe do some consultation or something like that, is you define, you know, maybe what things let's in the sense of software development right or an organization that has multiple teams or something like that you're looking at you know what all is going on across the board from the org level how is information making its way down and being disseminated and then how is that being picked up and then eventually being released and pushed to market is, is kind of you're looking at a holistic view and then kind of planning out for lack of a better terms when something happens where it's coming from and then how that flow could be optimized am i kind of kind of gathering that correctly definitely yeah so some of the reasons, I mean, it might be helpful to think of some of the reasons that something like value stream mapping or like flow engineering exists is mm -hmm. because we don't have, like currently it's pretty uncommon to have a level of organization that is providing a, a single team that's responsible for a product entirely without without a blocking dependency, right? Without any need to go to someone else and say, here's what we need in order to move forward. Um, you can often get that from like a product team where they're getting a backlog that's 
you know, they're creating a backlog that's informed by a program management committee that says, you know, here's the big things that we need to do this year. Um, and then they kind of try and figure out how to do it. And then they're creating features that get mashed up with other product teams for a big release that happens periodically. And there's still, you know, there's a lot of dependency in that, that scenario. There's a degree of flow, but it's not end-to-end -end flow. And it's not that that team is entirely responsible for satisfying a specific customer in whatever way they can, right? And, and owning the entire uh, ability to satisfy that customer. So that's not to say that in a value stream world, you have gigantic teams full of 500 people. What you're actually doing is simplifying and uh, breaking down what it takes to deliver value by mm -hmm. leveraging a bunch of other value streams in the organization. So for example, you will have like a product team that is responsible for providing perhaps a single feature to customers, but they're going to be working on top of a platform that gives them all their testing infrastructure that's provided by another value stream in the organization that's dedicated towards providing that to many teams. So all the product teams are leveraging a platform that's created by a platform team where mm -hmm. the customer in their case is the product teams. And so you start to see this network of small, nimble, autonomous product teams mm -hmm. with clearly defined customers that are either producing uh, or consuming value and usually both from different parts of the organization, but in a way that it's not tightly coupled and highly dependent. Mm -hmm. I follow. And so that's, that's, you know, kind of the impetus then behind, you know, the term value stream mapping is kind of what you're laying out there is, Hey, how do we map these out and know who's talking to who essentially? Yeah. The first, I mean, the first goal is really like, how do you understand what's really happening in the organization? Because mm -hmm. what's happening right now in organizations is that you do this wandering path through the org chart mm -hmm. to get anything done. Um, from start to finish. And so the first thing you want to see is like, how are things currently operating? Where's the waste in the, in the current system? Where are all the handoffs? Where's all the friction? Where's all the pain? And, and then what do we do about that? And, and you inevitably move in the direction of creating different stream aligned teams that are more facilitated towards delivering uh, value in, in a, in a, in a more flow focused sense, like without, without so much friction and waste. Um, but where you start is really just finding bottlenecks and constraints. Like where's the worst waste? Where is the lowest hanging fruit that we can knock off to get better flow? I see. Interesting. Steve, you uh, one of your descriptions in your um, in your Twitter bio is the Mari Kondo of automation, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm wondering, you know, if, if the first step I'm thinking of like the, the you know the 
the the Kanban path, right? It's like the first step is visualize the workflow, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what you're seeking to do at the organ at the level of the organization, the entire like where what are all the workflows, the the value streams, right? How do you get that kind of visibility outside of DevOps? And so I wonder, is this an easier lift the closer you are to the epicenter of software delivery? And then as it as it goes out into the rest of the organization, it's just more difficult? Or are you trying to introduce this, you know, uh, digital transparency into other parts of the organization and, 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 and kind of what that tie-in is? Yeah, well, I mean, to part one, the whole Marie Kondo thing is that uh, – really to change the way that you are uh, interacting with your environment and your relationship to like how you, how you operate in that environment is kind of seeing everything for what it is. Right. And, and Marie Kondo, if for anyone who doesn't know, she helps people like simplify their lives essentially by going into their homes, pulling everything out of the closets and the, the drawers, piling it on the floor and saying, let's, you know, let's go through this and see what we actually want to keep. And then we're going to go from there to figuring out, okay, well, how do we want to leverage everything that we're, we end up with, right? The, the things that are really important, the things that are really valuable to us, how do we place them in this environment so that we actually get the best out of them and we get the, you know, the best experience out of interacting with these things. So I see that, I see a parallel there with the way that we work. You know, we see all, we've got a lot of stuff invisible, hidden away. Uh, we hesitate to have conversations and pull things out into the light that would actually help us be happier and work more effectively because it seems really daunting and challenging to actually face it. But, uh, you know, Marie Kondo goes into people's houses with a very simple system. It works. It gets people out of that rut of being stuck. And, uh, you know, so things like mapping techniques and visualizing and measuring are the things that I see as a parallel. You, you can go into an organization, you can, uh, pull things out of the shadows and give people uh, helpful ways of reorganizing them, um, finding waste, finding things that are not necessary, and then providing people the ability to, to focus where it's really going to pay off, right? I mean, the things that are really valuable, now you can, you know, they're not going to be hidden away. They're not going to be uh, stuck in obscurity with all the things that are not important, we can start to focus more on things that are really driving maximum impact and things that we should be investing in. Uh, but the first step is really like, let's pull things out of the shadows and, and really look at them together and then start making some decisions about like, where do we want to invest? Where is the, the biggest opportunity here? So in an organization, we don't start from let's look at everything because nobody's going to hire me to, to turn their entire business upside down, um, even if they wanted to. Where we start is wherever folks feel like there's an opportunity to understand more about uh, the environment or where to focus next. 
there's a lot of organizations where someone moves into a new role and they're like, what is this? What are we doing here? Uh, where should I be putting my energy? Where should I uh, be investigating and planning for, uh, you know, I, I've got to build a roadmap and I don't even know what we're doing in this department, right? So value stream mapping can give you a way of mapping that territory, understanding that territory, and then targeting the highest value area for improvement while bringing everybody else along for the ride and asking them for their input too. So it's not just a solo exercise. It's extremely collaborative, extremely inclusive, extremely open. And, and that's how you get this, um, this map that everybody understands, everybody gets aligned on where we're going to go. And, uh, and it's giving you information about how you should get there. So Steve, you know, in doing that though, when you're working with um, people, you know, and you're, you're, you're looking through and trying to identify those areas, what, what's the pushback that you've, you've experienced, you know? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of folks, I mean, they don't often talk to me if they're not ready to at least understand what's going on. Like unless they want to look at things and really see uh a more accurate picture of, of their environment and mm -hmm. where they should be investing uh but you know that being said there could be a champion who brings me in and then we we need to make sure that everybody feels like this is a first of all it's worth the time investment uh which is why i try and keep everything super lean like i run every session in two hours or less um and so I, I want to address the first, the, the objection that we don't have time to do this, right? We're too, we're too busy to sharpen the saw uh, because we're, you know, we've got to, we've got to keep sawing in, mm -hmm. in order to bring this tree down, right? Um, so give people a really good reason to step away for a moment. So, which means that the effort has to be super high ROI. The other thing is that it has to be psychologically safe, right? So part of the reason folks bring me in is because I don't have a dog in the fight, right? I, I don't have any political agenda that's going to steer the mapping exercise to highlight any particular stakeholder and make them look good and, uh, you know, help them achieve some internal political goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we can kind of address that scenario. Uh, another one is just, that this is not for firing people or moving people around or giving people more work mm -hmm. uh, or telling them that they're not working hard enough. It, like it, we have to take a little bit of care when we have something that's this powerful and this revealing to frame it in the context of this is going to make everybody's work easier and more productive at the same time, it's going to bring us together as a team and it's going to make us feel like more of a team than just a bunch of individuals because it's about how do we make the entire system better and how do we leverage things like automation to help humans do more human work, more creative work, more complex problem solving than the boring handoff uh, toil 
coordination stuff that re really everybody hates to do. I see. Yep. I, I liked I liked one thing you said, and it reminds me of uh, something that's been just a, a lesson from experience. Is I was in this one session one time, and somebody asked this guy. They said, "What's the greatest blocker to um, organizations uh, adopting adopting more?" agile methods right or a team adopting change and he said lack of appetite that's the blocker mm -hmm. right and so it, it kind of started to formulate i was like man pain is the precursor to change you know I, i'm personally not one that just goes to the doctor often without need right. you know like i i have to be feeling some sort of pinch somewhere and then i go and the doctor doesn't need to sell me i came to him right yeah um so um so yeah that's really interesting it seems to be very true you know yeah i mean that's it's i'm not running into teams who are who are in a situation where they're like you know we just like to know what the value <laughs> stream looks like you know we're just kind of cool <laughs> yeah you know like we're, we're kind of light on work at the moment and so right. we're kind of just trying to uh take a step back and 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 figure out what our best opportunity is. No, it's mm -hmm. like everyone is telling us we need to go twice as fast and we have no idea how to do it. <laughs> That's the situation where we have a gigantic deadline or often what happens is there's a big opportunity. There's like a lot of organizations will come to me and say, we've got 500 um, clients in the pipeline and it takes us six weeks to onboard every single one of them. So obviously that's impossible at the mm -hmm. current state. And so how do we drive that down to crank through this giant backlog of opportunity that we have and not have it slip through our fingers? Because the opportunity cost there is, is enormous. Just as I was looking through it too, we had a couple of notes that we had shared and you know, there's one you know, based on what you're saying and, you know, obviously the appetite bringing it in saying people feel pain essentially, you know, and this is essentially why they ask you to come and address some things, right. And help identify some things, but you had a question there, justice. It was, um, you know, mind if I hijack, but I was really, really interested mm -hmm. to hear about, no. um, you know, what, uh, where does this kind of fall on the spectrum between, you know, project management, program management, something like that and engineering defining and finding those value streams this this kind of co goes back a little bit we skipped over a little bit about the tie-in for the devops right because uh, yeah yeah yes. yeah yeah they, they kind of go to, yeah maybe you could kind of answer those hand in hand like those thoughts yeah yeah so let me uh let me put that into some larger context like i i don't know if many people hold this opinion but i i hold it pretty strongly that almost everything that we've done in the software world has been project-based, even up to and including DevOps, has just been a response to a project-based approach to software, which was a mistake from the very beginning, but uh, natural because back when I started with release management, we were burning CDs and putting them in envelopes with big printed manuals. And I would walk it across the street to FedEx and put it in the mail. Mm -hmm. That was a big project, right? Each release was a project. It had a defined start and end point. We had a big deadline and everything had to fit into the deadline and we couldn't test anything until it was ready to test. And 
So we've really just been shrinking that release lead time um, by whatever mechanism we could the entire time. And Agile got really good at the software part when people realized, well, you know, we can't build software fast enough. And, you know, it takes too long to show anything to the business. And so that's a, it's natural to kind of focus there, but that's a tiny, tiny slice, right? And then we had the genius idea of saying, well, wait a second now, like we've got a ton of software being cranked out and it all hits the wall of operations and piles up. And the operations folks aren't incentivized to, to put it out. So how do we solve that problem? And so we sort of widened the scope. And now we're in a point where people are saying, oh, well, that worked for dev and ops. Let's cram security in there and then we'll have design. Bingo, and, yeah, yeah. and now yeah. we just have this gigantic Frankenstein word that represents the value stream. But, but you know, you have to step away and say, you can't just keep using the same pattern over and over again when it was the wrong pattern to begin with. The, the fact is like, there's way more in common with uh, manufacturing cars uh, and software than uh, building a, a mall and software. Like you've got to be cranking out work over and over again. You've got to be constantly delivering. The main difference between manufacturing and software is that is the ratio of design and development to production and delivery are opposite. So in manufacturing, you have a little bit of time, relatively a little bit of time, creating a product, establishing product market fit, and then just replicating it as many times as possible and as quickly as possible with the lowest cost and the highest quality. In software, you can't guarantee any kind of stability or quality because you have to be constantly evolving the product and you're constantly refining product market fit. You're always trying to create new features and new capabilities and learn more about your customers because that delivery and operation piece is extremely cheap. So you focus all your energy on design and development, but there's the same requirement to crank it out as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And to see this as a continuous flow rather than a defined start and end uh, phase-based approach. So we kind of like drove the car down the, the road of projects for way too long and res like just responding to that, dealing with the fact that we're on the wrong road. And we need to kind of back it up to the highway of value streams and continuous value delivery in order to move forward. So DevOps is necessary, but not sufficient. But I really think that there's a, there's a fundamental mindset shift that needs to happen in order to really move forward. Because it's not just, okay, we're gonna bolt something else onto the end of ops or onto you know, before dev or something in the middle and move forward, right? We've hit the, we've hit the diminishing returns from that approach. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was thinking while you're talking in there is that, you know, the, the ultimate flow is a, is a continuous one, right? And it, it sounded like what you were saying is that the, the end game for the f a flow focused mindset 
it supersedes even the an emphasis on the previous kind of epoch of, of cadence of delivery. Every two weeks, another version comes out, and we kind of get to a point where we have we got we're getting closer and closer, converging on this continuous delivery through like technology, like CI/CD and stuff like this, right? And you're saying like take that to the full nth degree of of this just continuous, uh, uh, you know, the infinite flow is a continuous one, you know. Um, yeah, something that we missed. Um, in in our quest to kind of understand more about software development and how to do it right is that lean was there the entire time like lean has really just been sitting around saying okay well if you define value and you map the value stream and you look at uh you know optimizing flow and then establishing pull and then continuously improving what else do you need what is missing from that right? Mm. That is going to give you automation. It is going to give you end-to-end -end visibility. It's going to give you all the things that we've, you know, reinvented the wheel for across Agile and DevOps and everything else that we've been doing since the 50s. Um, we've, we've had it the whole time. It's just taken us a long time to kind of discover, oh, wait, we can just use this thing that, uh, is 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 doing a great job and has decades and decades of validation behind it and research the, the similar thing happened just the other day we were talking to a colleague uh, friend of ours uh, fred coos and we were making a comment about how agile's making big time inroads into non-software development and he kind of cheekily he's like well that's where it came from right yeah. so so you come from the grocery store in manufacturing right and you're like hey it's you know it makes its way to software software feels like it almost perfects the the strategy or the approach or the model and then we're like we're making our way into non-software and it's like well it came from physical production in the first place so you know yeah. go it's a full circle yeah i mean it's it's if you look at if you look at lean practices, there's nothing like I've seen this over since, since we had the lean startup, we now have lean everything, right? People <laughs> talk about lean accounting. They talk about lean HR. Uh, I, I mean, sent my sister a, a lean HR book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. And, and it's either, you know, we've got this battle right now where it's either like HR ops, because people love throwing ops on the end of everything. Um, or, you know, you throw lean before it. But essentially, it's like, this is just good work. I mean, this is just a good way of doing things and getting things done when they have to be continuous, right? If you're going to be doing it more than once, then a lean approach is the only approach that really makes sense. And, and I haven't seen a better system. We're going to use that in the future, that template of lean X ops. I think that is the move. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever right. we're you selling what? next, that's it. You guys can take that one to the bank. <laughs> okay. If you just throw lean in front of everything and ops on the end, yes, you've got a golden ticket. I mean, I'm my interest is totally peaked. Any word that goes in there at this point, you know, and I yeah. know what it is, you know. So but we can end the podcast now. You guys can, <laughs> you got a business to run now. 
<laughs> yeah. let, me, let me just take it back one step though. I'm still interested though, when we talk about whatever it is, right? Defining value streams, looking and digging in to see where people have, you know, essentially waste and, um, you know, trying to adjust things, right? Many of the things we just talked about though, but in your mind, Steve, and, you know, I'll even pose this to you, Justice, does this fall along the lines of, you know, traditional project management or more kind of an engineering? And I'm kind of nudging a little bit um, more of an engineering mindset, right? Doing this kind of stuff, thinking this kind of way and implementing this. Wh where does, where's that line? Well, I, th I think, you know, you're, you're, you're throwing me a nice softball. Yeah. I am. One, yeah. But, um, uh, noted. <laughs> but <laughs> I think, you know, with, with project management, the challenge is that the feedback loops are often so long and the assumption is that we're not going to be repeating this process. And so those two things are very costly and they don't facilitate improvement or delivering value because if you're not learning fast enough, you can't close the gap between what you expect to be valuable and what is actually valuable in your customers' minds. And so um, when I think of, a lot of people have a very strong uh, dogmatic definition of engineering. To me, it is problem solving. It is narrowing the gap between we don't know how to do something and we're doing it and, you know, we're figuring it out along the way. So when I talk about flow engineering, I'm talking about continuously solving flow problems. Um, and the engineering aspect of it goes a little bit further than that to me, because what I want out of that exercise is systems that facilitate flow, right? I want something sustainable that doesn't require us to follow the same process over and over again as human beings, because I don't believe human beings should be doing robotic, repetitive things uh, or trying to. I want a system that does all the repetitive stuff and that allows the humans to do the problem-solving aspect of engineering, the the creative, the uh, the analytical the the intuitive aspects of problem solving and then the robots and the automation can do everything that's repetitive right so you have a virtuous view of what's going to happen in the technological singularity it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> i'm with you <laughs> is that i hear there's that uh, singularity hacker just hop on the line here <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a, I love to have that conversation. That's a long one. I have many opinions. Oh, same here. We'll have to do another, another recording for that one for sure. That'd be great. We could do a Halloween dystopia episode. <laughs> yeah. That's like a fantastic idea. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, you know, you're the guest on the show. I'm not, but Rick's question got me thinking this difference between project management and engineering. Like, what are your thoughts on this statement that are we converging or growing into the fact that even project management, and all this, it's, it's cannibalized and consumed and becomes a part of engineering. I mean, DevOps was operations as code. Right. Right. And as this, as all these methods and these ideas become more crystallized, they can be automated and analyzed. And like you said, we can save our brains for the creative work that can't be quantified and calculated. Right. But we can increasingly make 
the whole the the tools and the mechanisms for you know value stream identification uh, uh visibility and and you know quantification analyzing and all this right we can make that more like an engineering feat you know a hundred percent and i think that you know you hit the nail on the head when you said as code i think the very most basic aspect of this that we should be taking advantage of wherever we can is what can you codify what are the things that you notice uh as common foundation the things that happen repeatedly or need to be supporting our efforts how do we represent them in a more stable uh replicable scalable uh way where you know we're not necessarily automating everything but where do we see things that we could just like lay it down in a playbook and say yeah. you know this is how it works and if we're going to be making an improvement let's make an improvement to the playbook so that at least folks can follow along we can we can clearly understand what we're trying to do and then see our work systematically so that we can just take that for granted right like a lot of these things we hesitate to codify and 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 lay down a because it's really expensive right it goes out of date really quickly um but that's where you need to sort of bridge the gap between documentation and, and automation right if you actually codify it if it actually supports you as a platform or as a system then you don't have to really worry about maintaining it uh, in the sense that it's going to drift from reality you can maintain it in terms of tweaking the system and improving the system and uh and then you will leverage that benefit every iteration right i mean if we're going through this process um if we're cranking out stories through uh kanban flow and the average lead time for a story is a week then every week we're seeing that benefit right we're seeing that benefit every single time we run that flow yeah i know one of the real passions has come about for for me and rick working over the past few years has been our kind of um reaction against the idea of scrum masters and agile coaches just being session facilitators and and and, and really just being like what this is about is like a, a it's more of a process architect because if we say teams are are self-governing and they're mature and they can run themselves do you really need a person facilitating a meeting that everyone knows what this meeting is for and what the outcome should be right and then is there not should there not be far more attention on parts of the organization across the board that have higher return on value from someone who could see like you know these organizational design patterns type stuff you know mm -hmm. and who may understand yeah. better too you know how things connect right where things are coming down the pike from and then implement them at a larger scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that is a huge challenge with you know the roles that we have inside of Scrum, and even even in implementations where they're tailoring for larger scale. Um, the fact of the matter is, 
the scrum master really is like their goal is to facil facilitate flow to unblock things and that doesn't just mean like as things arise we we tackle them even if they are doing that job which very few are they they are like i would say there's a very high percentage who are just doing meeting facilitation and saying okay well like who who else has something to add and like what are we going to try to do better next time right. um which we can write a robot to do this part yeah exactly <laughs> exactly um but you know that myopic view of like a scrum master just being responsible and and understandably right i mean if your responsibility is to one product team you're not really incentivized to step outside and say hey other scrum masters what are you seeing uh because these are the challenges that we're seeing if you're seeing the same things how about we look at how to solve this for everybody? Uh, there's no, like, where's the incentive for that? Where's that built into the job description? Where is the person getting rewarded for that level of operation? Um, you know, chances are that they're going to be looked on with some suspicion if they're stepping outside of their, well, like, do you not have enough work to do that you've, you've got to go wander around the organization and start looking at, how other teams are doing things like what is this about are you trying to steal secrets or you know get a leg up and and make yourself look better like a lot of this is culturally bound and, mm -hmm. and restricted but uh the roles in and the mechanisms of scrum uh aren't really built to avoid that yeah steve i mean i was just gonna say too that you know uh, and this is a longer conversation too, but you know, just speaking frankly, let's step away from just a scrum master, but just as an agilist, right? An agilist of some sort in a company or an organization, right? A lot of times, like you said, there's people say, well, how do I judge you? How do I understand what your performance is? You know, what, what, what do you do here? You know, you get that kind of a yeah. question a lot. And there's, you know, I, I always err on the side of like you're saying, kind of figure out how to optimize flow and then somehow quantify the change, right? And continue to improve over that. That's a good way to judge what a, a, an excellent Agilist could do. Um, but there, that's not the standard, that's not the norm I've found. Um, but I wanted to ask you too, along those same lines too, before we kind of you know, leave this thought process that, we, that we're currently in, um, you know, when, you, when you optimize something or when you identify um, you know, changes that need to be made and you're increasing, the, uh, you know, identifying value streams and increasing flow, how often do you revisit things as, yeah, as this is this is a great question i i advise teams i mean here's the reality the reality is uh people aren't doing this at all right so uh how often is a luxury that i, I like i don't get to i don't get to bump up against that very often um because i just want people to do this once uh if you do this once you're way ahead of the curve uh, most teams, I think, once they realize what they get out of doing it once, uh, if they approach it the right way, you know, there's ways to do this wrong and it's, it's not entirely trivial. It's simple, but not easy. Uh, but, you know, once you start seeing the benefits, you're going to be changing the value stream, right? If, you, if you're identifying constraints in the value stream and you actually do anything about it, your value stream changes, right? You've got, you've got delays in the value stream that go away. You have activities that run sequentially that you'll start running in parallel. And so the, 
structure of the value stream changes as a result of you improving the value stream, which means your map gets out of date. Uh, there's two reasons why that's not a problem. One is that the mapping is more important than the map. The fact that you bring folks together and you get them to share their perspectives and you build this collaborative, um, collective understanding, you can take the map and throw it away at the end of the session and everyone's going to be way better off just because we don't have really good ways of doing that. We don't have good ways of getting information and perspectives out of people's heads and getting them into some state that people can look at and talk about really constructively. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that, you know, if, if it's actually working, the value stream changes and you're going to need to map again, but, um, but that's another reason why I move away from a lot of people who do value stream mapping. They say it's, this has to be three days. This has to be a week. Um, you know, when we mapped, we laid out 2000 steps and we didn't want to look at it ever again because it was crazy. Um, my focus with flow engineering is what is the least possible investment to get clear understanding on what we should do next and what's really going to move the needle. And so I, I hold myself to two hour workshops for every single map in the flow engineering portfolio, mm -hmm. because I want folks to have no excuse for running it often, right? I don't want it to be expensive. I want massive ROI from the effort. And so it, for me, that, that means it has to be painless. You have to immediately get more benefit out of running the exercise than you put in. Uh, and so what we find when we do mapping is that every time we map, we, we take 20% of the value stream and we're able to eliminate 20% um, of, of the, the waste in the value stream, which more than pays for the investment of doing the mapping exercise by whatever metric you want to you wanna throw at it. Sure. It reminds me, you have a, there's a chart in your uh, ebook um, that, that's online on flow engineering. And I love this chart. It, it shows um, in the vertical axis impact and the horizontal axis effort. And I thought it was so funny in the whole middle area where you're like, well, this takes a middle of the road effort and it's middle of the road impact. You're like, forget it. <laughs> you're like, listen, what is low effort? And the high, like we want the big bangers and we're not concerned about all this other nonsense. Right. And I was like, I get down with that. I, that's great. That's the heart of lean. Is it not? Yeah. I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit stuff that we can tackle. And especially if you've never mapped before, like you're in the best situation to dramatically change your, uh, your value stream because you're going from like, not like you don't know what the work looks like as much as you think you do because you've got a single perspective on it. Mm -hmm. And so just seeing it from all these different dimensions, you know, you're getting this like 360 degree view of the value stream. You're going to come out of that with like super simple things you can do tomorrow. Oftentimes what happens is like by the end of the meeting, we're like, all right, so we're going to do this like before the next time we, we run this meeting again, right? Being like, we're going to do sprint planning um, in half an hour and we're going to run it with an agenda because we don't need two hours for sprint planning. And 
like compressing the effort and being clear on the purpose of the meeting and the value of the meeting is going to get us where we need to go in a fraction of the time. Um, things like right now we have an email that goes from this group to this group uh, to move this uh, work forward. If you just replace that with like an automated Slack message from Jira or something, mm -hmm. then we've eliminated 24 hours of delay while someone like maybe checks their email, maybe not. There's, this, this there's sounds, tons of easy stuff. It sounds a lot like, you know, when somebody who is like, Hey, I want to, I want to build some muscle or I want to exercise more. It's like, well, you got to start doing something. And there's some, some, <laughs> some things that you can identify and some things you can do pretty quickly off the bat. And then you can revisit that and revamp it and continue to dig. I mean, that's a lot of what this sounds like. Definitely. Definitely. Now, Steve, I wanted to ask you one kind of last question, unless Rick has something else, before we get in and just kind of do a rundown on what you, your specific stuff you have online, right? Your, your groups and your consulting and all that. And that this last question is basically this. It's what is the bleeding edge in your space right now? So this could be ideas, tools, methods, trends. What is the thing that is like you feel in your gut, this is the future, this is the alpha, this is the horizon over the next horizon? Well, um, I mean, I don't know if this speaks to, to my ego at all, but I feel like what I'm doing where I'm focusing my energy is something that is pretty new and groundbreaking for folks, which makes it kind of a tough sell and it can, um, it's not something that a lot of folks are doing. I'm, I'm working really hard to try and make it more of a regular practice for people and make it easy for people to do. Um, in the value stream space, there's a lot of momentum. I think value stream management is a game changer to address a number of different things that are kind of peaking at the moment. So there's this paranoia over supply chain, right? Um, that vulnerabilities are getting injected into uh, your code by open source libraries or, you know, things that, that are very challenging to test and not having visibility into like everything that it takes to put your code out into the world. And that's one aspect of kind of managing your value stream. It's more value chain management, but that's getting rolled into this idea of value stream management. Value stream management is really like the automated way to manage your value streams on a continuous basis at scale, like across your whole organization. And that will eventually encompass everything from HR to uh, onboarding new customers, everything in your organization, because everything in your organization is a value stream. And so we're going to see that grow a lot. And that is kind of the, um, the big trend, the big bleeding edge thing right now. And that's not even new, right? I mean, we had application lifecycle management forever that nobody used. And we, we've had a lot of these things that were trying to drive this higher level of visibility and, and, and track work across organizations. I just think we're hitting a perfect moment where there's a lot of API first operations that are enabling data sharing in effective ways. We have um, 
streams of data that folks can can leverage now, um, standardized data interchange. All these things are kind of coming together to facilitate this higher degree of observability across an organization. And then we're going to be pairing that with AI that can separate signal from noise and highlight anomalies and say, you know, this is trending in the wrong direction. Or, you know, every time we see these things happen, six months later, this is a this is the result of that. Or, you know, we're seeing this specific ratio in terms of work profile change. And you start working more on technical debt than in the past. And um, so, you know, whether or not that's paying off is something that like we can we can now see in uh, in something like value stream management software. So th that is really going to underpin this transition from tech and business being separate things to uh, tech is now the electricity running the business and, um, yep. and there's no separation. Right. And there's, uh, you, you, you obviously put things into, into, you know, considering that I, I would assume, and I think we kind of alluded to it a little bit, but you are obviously put things in place that are measuring the difference, you know, or the outcome of what you've done so that you can inspect and, you know, not to coin a phrase, but inspect and adapt and see where, hey, this made a difference or maybe this didn't, we need to retool this again. I mean, you, you are capturing that in the process of doing this, this mapping and this, this restructuring and, and obviously having stuff like AI. Kind of yeah, so there's there, there's like an automated aspect to that for sure. sure. Mm -hmm. In the in the mapping world, what you're doing uh, in that regard is it's it's soft it's softer it's more qualitative. But what you do is you do a current state map. You actually do an ideal state map, which mm -hmm. is like you're kind of stretching beyond and saying like, what could we do if we could do anything? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of come back to earth and you say, okay, what what's this going to look like in three to six months? Wow. And then that's your future state that you judge yourself again against when you map again and you say, okay, well, we made it here. We expected to make it here. Either we did better than we expected or, or not as well. And then you can do that adaptation at that point. I see. Well, awesome. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, give us, give us the spiel on, on what you do. Well, I'm a, uh, one thing I probably should say is that I say no to absolutely nothing. So as a result, I'm in, I'm in the middle of a lot of stuff. So uh, most recently, I just gave a talk at uh, the DevOps Enterprise Summit about my book that is due very soon. It's going to be released in fall of 2022. It is all about flow engineering, collaborative mapping, uh, managing cross-organization dependencies, getting people to work together uh, and manage up, down, and across. So that is a big project. Dude, congratulations on that. Uh, if I had a book awesome. coming out here soon, I'd have mentioned that in about the first two minutes of the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would have just answered everything with book. I have heard that I got to get into the author mode. Like it's not, it's not something that comes naturally to me, but I've heard that before. You know what, you know, this is really in the book and I recommend, it's like, I recommend checking that out if you're interested. But um, 
No, I mean, I put stuff, I put stuff out all the time and the book is really just going to be a package of stuff that's probably all already out in the world if you wanted to go and hunt it down and put it all together yourself. But um, um, there will also be extra value added stuff because I'm sure my publisher <laughs> would want me to say that. Um, again, terrible author. But um, there is also the Value Stream Management Foundation course, which just came out recently. And I, uh, I worked with a wonderful woman by the name of Helen Beal to put that together. So that is covering everything from the history and evolution of value streams to what's next in value stream management and how organizations are going to uh, restructure for flow. Um, and so I highly recommend that. That's, that's a huge effort. Um, it's really, we, we put like all of our experience into that and, uh, and it's a lot of experience. I mean, I would say between Helen and I, you're getting like two of the, two of the people most invested in this value stream space. Now um, that people can find out more about that through the visible.is, right? The course is actually through uh, vsmconsortium.org, mm -hmm. I believe is the, uh, is the, the website. It might be .com. Okay. Um, again, terrible at promotion. Um, That's all right. We'll get the links for you. Put, <laughs> put them in the notes and people yeah. just have to click, you know? Don't yeah. Worry. So there's, uh, so there's that. And, and thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, mm -hmm. The other uh, initiative was something that was started through COVID and it was really an effort to stay in touch with folks that I thought were really smart and, and were talking about things that I was really interested in and really grow a conversation around flow. So we started um, the flow collective which is flowcollective.org. And that's a, that's a group where we meet weekly. We have a, a Slack group that's just packed with conversation about every aspect of flow and value and uh, ways of working. There's a ton of really smart and passionate folks in there. And I've been blown away by the growth of that community. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of other side projects that I'm working on. I'm really, my goal is to get flow engineering into every organization, right? I, I want folks doing this uh, collaborative mapping, whether they use my maps or other, other maps, I really don't care. Uh, my goal is to make the easiest path the easiest on-ramp to doing this, but I think that we have to be doing it. We have to be getting our individual perspectives out uh, as a group and, and having better conversations with more actionable outcomes. And that's what flow engineering is all about. So that's, a, that's completely open source. Um, I, do not, uh, I do not hold any IP for that. It's really just something that I'm putting out and saying, I would love it if, if you can either find me a better alternative or start using this and, and tell me where it, where it works and where it doesn't work. And that flowcollective.org, I think I, I just before the show signed up, there's like a whole, um, there's a Slack community people can mm. hop into, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. We do a lean coffee every single week. Uh, cool. We're recording our conversations and putting them out on YouTube about all kinds of different topics. Mm. Uh, it really is all about like learning in public and, and trying to figure all this out um, and really taking what is right now kind of like esoteric systems thinking um, 
very highly intellectual stuff and and like how do we make that accessible to everybody and make it really easy for people to get get the concepts and and start benefiting from some of these uh some of these ideas and methods awesome yeah well uh rick if you got anything else i i just want to say um man thanks for sharing your wealth of experience and and knowledge with us and these Absolutely. resources and painting a picture and honestly i i'd save so many links on value stream mapping prior to this show and was trying to kind of wrap my fingers around it and uh it's one of those things that i come away with a better understanding after this conversation and and i'm more hungry to get into it uh than i thought i would be and um so um so yeah i'm stoked for your book to come out uh to kind of get more involved in this flow community and um yeah, man, this is fantastic stuff. And I feel like we really got somebody who's in the cutting edge in a space. You know, we're always trying to press into the future and we got a picture of where that's going uh, yeah. with you today. Absolutely. I mean, well said, Justice. I feel like exactly. I mean, can't, couldn't say it any better. So. But I will say, we do, much. we do have to have you back, Steve, for the dystopian technology future. Podcast. Yes. <laughs> I mean it. Yes. I mean it. <laughs> so. Oh, I have so many ideas. Yeah. We'll, we'll get it on the books for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Modern Agilist podcast, where we examine and discuss all things related to agile and large-scale software delivery. You can find the latest podcast episodes and our latest blog posts on our website, themodernagilist.net. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you enjoyed listening to our content, please subscribe.